Good morning, everyone. Okay, cool. Thanks. Thank you. I want to welcome you if you're visiting with us. We're going to have ushers come. We have extra Bibles if you don't have a Bible. Normally what we do is we read verse by verse through books of the Bible, but sometimes we step back and say, hey, we're going to do a, a study of a topic in the Bible. And so we're doing a series called Rooted in the Faith in which we're looking at what does the Bible teach about God, man, Christ, the Holy Spirit, sin, salvation, the church, the future, a lot of interesting things which the Bible calls doctrine, teaching. What does the Bible teach? So it was interesting just to respond in worship to what we've learned about the existence of God, the attributes of God. Last week we talked about the, the trinity or the triunity of God. This morning we're going to talk about man. It was interesting. We just read in Psalm 8. David was sitting out probably on the hillside as the sweet psalmist who was a shepherd. And he says, Lord, as I consider the heavens that you created, the moon and stars which you ordained, what is man that you would be mindful of him? Like, we're just like these little creatures prancing around in this vast universe. What, who are we and what are we? And of course, we all sort of, even subtly, without thinking about it, kind of answer that question all the time. Who am I? What am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Where am I going? What's the meaning of life? And so it's really important that we be careful not to adopt what the, what the world teaches about man versus what the Bible teaches about man because we all look at the same data. We look at people and we go, okay, what's going on? Like this week I was talking to my neighbor and he says, I can't believe, and he's an atheist, that guy down in Las Vegas What's wrong with people? How could he do that? Of course, we all ask that question, but then we all might have a different answer. And so the Bible teaches that many of the things that are true about how life works are not something that we learn from intuition. We learn from God's revelation, the Bible. And so this morning, we want to talk about what does the Bible teach about this very important subject of humanity of mankind in general. Usually when you're studying theology, you'll study the doctrine of man and sin. And so, just real quick, and again, don't try to write all this down because we'll have it on PowerPoints. You can get these later. But if you're going to think about what does the Bible teach? We're made in the image of God. We're male and female. What is, what is it that's the outer side? And what's on the inside of soul and spirit? And, and what was Adam like? And what happened when he, when he fell into sin? So, I already realize I have too much on these slides, and so you're going to be torn between reading the slide or listening to me. Trust me, you can get the slides. So let's start with this question of what does it mean to be made in the image of God? So we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll talk about the implications. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and I just pray that you would bless our study time. May the Holy Spirit truly speak to us and help us as Christians to grow and to think biblically and to be transformed by the word of God as we're changed into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You read Genesis chapter 1, you've got God unfolding these magnificent acts of creation, many of them by fiat. He would just say, this is it, let there be. But when he comes to this pinnacle of his creation, he has this divine dialogue where he stops and says to one another, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then let them rule. And then we read in verse 27, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. And then he adds, 
male and female he created them so we want to stop and ask ourselves what what does that mean to be made in the image of god in what way do humans represent or reflect the image of god and i want to suggest that first of all some people believe that it's just ethically like inside we can be like god we can love people we can be nice other people say Uh, No, it's more than that. Many theologians limit the image of God to internal qualities. In other words, um, there's nothing physically that represents God. It's just spiritually, our our inner man. And I'm going, I don't know about that. See, there's this big debate among theologians. God is a spirit. So when God says, I'm going to make you in my image, and he puts these little critters down here called man made in his image, is there anything about our outer person that reflects the image of God? Theologians sometimes say, God doesn't have eyes and ears. And I'm going, yeah, he does. The Bible says that. He that made the ear, doesn't he hear? He doesn't have physical eyes and ears, but he has eyes and ears and a mind. It's just hard for us to understand because it's not in bodily form. So so we start with this premise. All right, God says, I'm going to put all over the earth little images of me. And people have debated what that meant. But I think probably the best thing to do is to look at the text itself. What does the context of the passage, what's the primary way that we reflect God's image? Is it just when we're nice to one another? Ooh, that was very God-like. Well, primarily here, you'll notice that he says right after he created them, he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, so, so I want you to reproduce. I want a bunch more of you like me. But here's the mandate. Here's what he said to do. And to me, this is important. This must be one of the most significant ways that we reflect God's image. He said, I want you to subdue the earth and rule over it. Okay? So somehow God, who is the the ruler of all of the creation, says, I'm going to place on this little planet little representatives of me, and they're going to learn to lord over the earth under me. So instead of me directly ruling over the earth, you're going to rule. We just read in Psalm 8, I'm going to put all creation under your feet. So what's that going to look like? If, if we were created by God to be like him in, in overseeing the earth, people have thought about, okay, wh- where would that show up? What are some ways that that would show up? And theologians like John Frame, who just wrote this really massive new theology book, he suggested that perhaps um, if our job was to to fill the earth, right, with offspring, to to teach people to joyfully worship and obey God, how would would Adam do that? What would that look like as as he has generations of offspring and he's he's bringing them under the image of God and this mandate to rule? He says, maybe there's three areas. Okay, so think about this. He says, in the image of God, first of all, Adam would reflect a prophetic role. He would communicate language. And that makes a lot of sense. It's Adam's responsibility to teach the rest of humanity as they reproduce how to obey God. Teach them God's words. Right? So there's a prophetic role. And then a priestly role. Adam, as God's representative in his image, was to then mediate and bring blessing to the earth, subdue the, the earth, rule over it, make it better, manage it, steward it, um, organize it. But then 
bless people. The, the role of a priest is to bring blessing to others. And so as humans, we're supposed to be a blessing to others. But we also have responsibilities of ruling and managing in parenting realms and thing like, things like that. Now, it is an interesting side note to think about this. God didn't put man in rule over all of creation. Did you notice that? In Genesis 1, he creates the sun and the moon, right? And he creates the sea. But he doesn't give that to man. He says, you're going to rule over the animals and, and parts of creation, but not everything. So we're never going to be able to, 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 to control the sun. Like, hey, we're not going to have a sun today. And we're never going to be able to control the sea. We would have done that a long time ago. If there was a way to stop these hurricanes and floods, we would have done that a long time ago. So, so we're only managing significant portions of his creation. But with that in mind, I want you to think about the implications. So we go, big deal. So people are made in the image of God. Well, number one, that very statement, people were created in the image of God. To deny that, to deny a literal Adam, and believe me, there are millions of people who, who, who first of all, if, if they don't even have a place for God, would just say, we weren't created, we evolved, period, right? But then there are other Christians who are going, but I was told by the scientific community that we evolved. I mean, that's a fact, right? It's not a fact. It's a total theory with lots of weaknesses to that theory. So Christians try to blend it together. They go, well, God created Adam and Eve, but we know from science that it was through a long millions of years of evolution. So he must have created Adam and Eve through evolution. And I'm going, no. To say that would be to discredit Jesus because look what Jesus said. He said, have you not read that he who created them, male and female, from the beginning? I want you to think about that. If God created male and female through these microcosm amoebas that took millions of years before we turned into man, then why would God call that the beginning, right? It's not the beginning if millions of years later, Adam finally evolved. So that's kind of important. There are a lot of people who hold different views on the age of the earth and try to hold to some theistic form of evolution but when it comes to a literal Adam you got a problem if you say oh I don't think God created Adam I think he just evolved so he he he, he sort of God created him through evolution but there's other implications let's just talk about the second one that means that we might think some people don't have a whole lot of worth but in God's sight he goes look all lives matter now so what? Well, here's, here's a so what. When God flooded the earth in Adam and Eve's day, part of the reason for that, he goes, the earth is full of violence. They're just killing one another. So when they get off the flood and we sort of have a redo, God says, we're not going to let this happen again. From now on, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God institutes a government system of protection and punishment for people who murder. And you're going, God, why? He goes, here's why. Because in the image of God, I made man. So we might think that person's a derelict. He, he's just a, a filthy piece of trash. Or, or that deformed child, are they really in the image of God? But God says every human being has worth and value and dignity. And all lives matter to God. And that has implications not only about racism, but about abortion right? These are not 
To abort an unborn child is not to, to discontinue a, a fetus, but it's to take a human life made in the image of God. To look at an older person and say, yeah, you know, their, their quality of life, you know, too much to... Euthanasia, these are people in the image of God. We don't have the right to determine who deserves to live and who doesn't. There's a third implication of being made in the image of God, and that is that we look at people and we go, how could somebody shoot people like that? We have to remember that we have the image of God, but it's distorted big time. So when someone said to you a long time ago, yo, man, you're messed up, and you got so upset about that, you should have just said, I know. We're all messed up. But that's important to think about because no matter how messed up, twisted, weird, confused, violent or aggressive or whatever someone is, they're still in the image of God. So even that guy who shot those people in Las Vegas, he's still in the image of God. And, and it helps us to think about this. Unbelievers still have some semblance of the image of God, okay? Even if they act like animals. Maybe an example would be if I went by a terrible car accident and I saw this twisted wreck of metal that had been burned and, and it's just a charred rumble of twisted parts. I don't go, I wonder what happened to that elephant because I could still see a mirror or a motor or some vestige of, I know that was a car. And so when we look at humans, sometimes people struggle because they're like, I know unbelievers who are nicer than Christians. I go, I do too. But that doesn't cause me to throw away the Bible. People can be nice. They're made in the image of God. But people can also be nasty. James kind of picks on that. He goes, you know, the tongue's a powerful tool for good or evil. He goes, but here's one thing you shouldn't do. Come to church and with the tongue bless the Lord and Father and then turn around with your same tongue and curse men. Stinker, what's the matter? The moron idiot, right? We get on politics or something like, like that's okay with God to call people filthy animals and morons? No, it's not. He goes, the reason I don't want you to do that is he goes, they're still in the image of God. So it helps me to think about how I, how I interact. They might not be acting like people in the image of God, but God says they hold value. A cool thing to remember, too, is that when we become Christians... We have accepted God's recall. You know, you get a recall on, hey, there's a default with your car. Now bring it in or it's going to burn up. You know, the airbag is going to go off. Jesus sends out an edict to the whole world. He goes, the first time you were born, you were born messed up. But I got good news. You can come and become born again. Now, I still have in my um, mail slot something, a recall for one of the... Um, Something in my car, but it's not something that's going to blow up or burn up or, you know, strangle me or something. I never bothered with it, right? And, and a lot of people look at life that way. Oh, I know I have to be born again, but I'm not doing that, right? Why should I come to God and say, hey, God, I'm messed up. Would you change me and forgive me and, and recreate me? I need, a new, I need a new motor. I need a new computer. And this is a cool way to view yourself as a Christian. You're not just a filthy sinner who was saved. When you came to Christ and you were born again, God implanted within you a whole new infrastructure. 
You have been made a new person in Christ, and you are beginning a journey to become like Christ. And it's not just God polishing up the outside. It's an inner transformation. Look at these passages as Paul called on Christians to change their ways. He says, don't lie to one another because you've put on the new self. You're being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now, when, when, when there's construction going on, we usually put a sign to warn people, like, you have to expect some inconsistencies and maybe some irritations because there's construction going on. Maybe as Christians, we should all have a little sign that says, under construction, right? Like, yeah, I know this wasn't what the image of God's supposed to look like, but, but God isn't saying, hey, clean up your act. He says, look, you and the likeness of God have been created. We are in process, Okay? But if I could use the analogy of your car being in the shop, there are times where God starts to, to hone in on some area. He goes, I want to change you into the image of Christ here. And we don't like it for a minute because it hurts. God goes, you know, we're going to have to, we're not going to just polish up that bumper. We're going to replace it. So we back out. We leave the shop. We run from the Holy Spirit. And it just doesn't work. So recognizing that I'm, I, I know what I'm doing. I know why I'm here. God has created me, and he's transforming me back into the image of Christ. And, and so I can't say, oh, am I more like Jesus today than I was yesterday? But look back over the last year or two. Are you more selfish, or are you more loving? Are you more angry or more kind? Are you seeing evidences of the Spirit of God changing you? And every time we fail, we ought to be reminded, hey, God's not done and thankfully, at the end of the day, I'm going to look like that brand new Mercedes. And the reason we know that is the Bible tells us that at the end of the day, God's design from creation was that one day we would become conformed to the image of his son. One day we will be exact images of Christ. That's encouraging. But that ought not to be an excuse to say, well, whatever, you know. So that's cool. That's exciting. God says, one day you're going to be glorified. That's what I'm doing in your life. You're not, I'm not just putting you here for your happiness. It's for your holiness. You're under construction, and you can reflect me the way, the way it was in the beginning. So you go, all right, the image of God, man, that matters. But you know what else matters? Our, our gender. God says he made them in his image, male and female. Now, I want to remind you of something. Just because somebody quotes a verse, right? The Bible says false teachers twist the scriptures to their own destruction, okay? But Christians rightly divide the word of truth. With all of the discussion right now on gender confusion and choosing your identity, there are some people who twist this passage. They go, look, you're basically born with both genders, and then you can choose because after all, it says God created them male and female. So we're all created male and female. So decide which one you want to go with. I think that's a twisting of the scripture. I don't think that's what God's intention here. First of all, when God made us in his image, he's not male and female. But he's teaching us that male and females both can reflect the image of God. Not everyone agrees with that. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says... Man is the image of, and glory of God, and the woman is the, the glory of man. But I, I think people aren't understanding the context of that passage. I think men and women can equally reflect the glory of God. 
but, but let's stay on this gender thing. So little Billy, as he's growing up, or Betty, or Barry, or Billy Jean, do I say, hey, you know, what do you want to be? Or do I go, as a Christian, since God created us with gender and anatomy, we're not free to pick. We're not free to choose whether we want to be a boy or girl. We're not free to say, hey, I want to engage in same-sex creation or um, relations, because after all, that's, that's just who I am. I'm going, no, that's not who you are. So, but everyone tells me I have to be tolerant. I mean, isn't this what Angelina Jolie's doing with her child? right? So, so you don't want to look at your kid and say, well, he seems to be acting more like the opposite sex. Let's just run with that. Okay, now I want to say something about the whole issue of gender. Gender confusion and same-sex attraction, these are complex and difficult struggles. Okay, so let's not just be, oh, stop talking. You know, people struggle with this stuff, right? And, and, and it's very, very inappropriate for a Christian to say, oh, you know, the reason you're attracted to the same sex is because you just chose that. You just want to be like that. It's just, you just, you, you know, you're, you're, Romans 1 says you're leaving the natural order and burning in your desire for one another. That, that's crazy. I think there's, it, it, the Bible doesn't say that, that people are willfully choosing to feel attraction for the same sex or to have gender struggles. But what it does teach is that just because I might feel a propensity towards something doesn't mean that's who I am, doesn't mean I was born with that gene, and doesn't mean I need to practice that. So I think we need to be sensitive to the reality there are some people who will struggle with their gender or who will struggle with same-sex attraction, and we need to recognize that. And we can't just throw people who struggle with homosexuality under the bus because fornication and adultery are also sexual sins, and God causes them, calls them sin, okay? So as I interact, some of you may even have a, a child, or you're going you're gonna to have a coworker. You're going to know people that are going to go, well, I was born this way, and nobody's going to tell me. And I'm going, listen, our job as Christians, we're not intolerant. We're not hateful bigots, but we're under the authority of Scripture. We believe that this is God's Word, and we believe we have to compassionately teach this to others. Somebody came to me after the first service. They said, thank you for just telling the truth. We were at a church where they seemed to only just want to tell what people wanted to hear. And the Bible says that in the last days, men will turn away their ears from the truth. But the Bible doesn't say, hey, it doesn't matter. The Bible teaches that fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, they will not inherit the kingdom of God, swindlers, drunkards. So... so so as I think about people made in the image of God, God gives us a gender, and he doesn't say, hey, it doesn't matter, choose one or choose how you act. But if you're struggling or you're trying to help someone with same-sex attraction, or, or, or there's just so many complexities since people have been abused, there's all kinds of issues. The gospel offers healing, it offers hope, it offers power, Right? So, so we go, well, I'm just, that's who I am. I'm just going to run with it. But, but we don't do that with a violent child. We don't go, man, that kid's violent. He just has a propensity to violence. Well, that's who he is. Let's teach him how to hit people, right? And, of course, people will go, well, that's different because it hurts other people. But there's bigger issues than whether a, a behavioral choice hurts people. The issue is, what does God say in the Bible, okay? So as Christians, we need to be informed and careful and think about implications of gender and sexuality. 
So number one, we don't choose our gender or our lifestyle. But second, as male and female, we need to be reminded that God's big picture, the purpose for male and female was for marriage. You know, ah, come on, pastor, it's just a piece of paper. Who cares? We just live together, right? It's not a piece of paper. And frankly, marriage was never man's idea. Adam didn't look at Eve and say, hey, you want to get married? It was God's idea. It was God's institution. A man shall leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. And he's going to bring them together for a lifelong marriage. And, and so when we deviate from God's plan for marriage and family, we're disobeying God. If we say, well, you know, I'm not into that marriage thing. You know, we'll just give it a whirl for a while. That's sin to live together, not marry, to have children out of wedlock. Not because we're hateful or old-fashioned. It's going against God's design. It's going against the truth of why we're, we were created. But again, we have to go, there's a lot of struggles and complexities. But we can't just excuse and say, oh, well, we, we just choose to do it our way. Third implication, as male and female, again, we got to weigh in on this because people are thinking about it and talking about it. What does this have to do with the way men and women relate? Right? So on the one hand, it's very important to remember that men and women are equal in nature especially as Christians. In Christ, the Bible says there's no male or female. In, in the book of 1 Peter, it says, live with your wives in an understanding way because she's a, a fellow heir of the grace of life. So men are not smarter, better, more competent. Okay, that's really important. We are absolutely equal in our nature. However, in function and in practice, God gives distinct roles to men and women in certain settings. One of them is in marriage. The Bible teaches that husbands are to love their wives and be the head of their wife and that wives are to submit to their husbands. Now, a lot of people don't like that for numerous reasons. One, because there's a lot of men who are jerks and forceful, arrogant, domineering, ungodly husbands. But I want to remind you that when Christ was on earth, even though he was equal with God, he submitted to his father. So ladies, when God's asking you to submit to your husband, it's not because he's better than you. It's not because he's smarter than you. It's because this is his functional design for certain things that take place in life, marriage, and then in the local church. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I, at which Paul said is written to teach you how to conduct yourself in the church. He says, I do not permit women to teach or have authority over men in the church. Not because women can't preach or because women don't have the capacity to lead. They do. But this was not God's design. In 1 Timothy 2, he says, it was not Adam who was created first, but Eve. And he says, it was Eve who was deceived. So, so let's be sensitive, but, but, but understand that my view, and I think, well, I'll just say this, is a complementarian view, not that hey, there's nobody in charge, there's, we're equal, right? It's just not what the Bible teaches in my judgment. But again, I want to be very fair and, and say, guys, number one, if you dominate your wife and you're like, hey, remember, know your role, get back in the kitchen, you're being very foolish and proud and you need to learn how to love your wife with gentleness and understanding. Well, let's move from that. Male and female, image of God, what about our inner man? There's all kinds of complexities. You're like, I remember when I took psychology, the study of the sukkos, the soul. And you're like, yeah. And the Bible says 
Be careful, don't let anyone take you captive through the traditions of men rather than according to Christ. So I'm all for psychology, I'm all for counseling, but I do want to say this. Be sure that the models that you learn of psychology and counseling are firmly grounded in Scripture and that in no place do they contradict Scripture or discard that, that part of it. So let's start with this. What is on the inside of us? Well, many Christians say, look, we got three parts, an outer man, the body, and then we have a soul and a spirit. Paul distinguishes between the soul and spirit. He says, I pray that your soul and body and spirit will be preserved without blame. So why are we talking about this? I got three things, body, soul, and spirit. And I'll say, well, here's, here's why we're talking about this. For two reasons. Number one, those who go with this model, of which I'm going to explain why I'm not even fully on board with this, begin to then take it further and say, okay, the spirit is the, uh, the spirit is the, um, the seed of your volition. The soul is the seed of your emotions. And they begin to add all these speculations and they come up with these models of psychology and counseling trying to explain people. I'm going, the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, here's one of the problems I have with trying to distinguish. Even though I think the soul and spirit are separate, I think it's just part of your inner man. The Bible uses these terms interchangeably. So in James chapter 2, it says, a body without the spirit is dead right? But in Revelation chapter 6, as John described saints up in heaven, he says, I saw the souls of those who were beheaded. You're like, John, why didn't you say the souls and spirits? Because they're interchangeable. So I think it's better as you think about yours and my composition to just say, hey, we have two parts. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.16. Our outer man is decaying, right? Our bodies are decaying. I used to have hair. I used to have a nose that didn't have like a big like jigsaw puzzle down the middle of it. We're, we're getting older, right? But our inner man, you have an inner man, okay? And frankly, this is really important because most people completely neglect their inner man. They're not worried about their inner man. They're totally living like puppies, just gratifying their pleasures. So what, what are some of the implications? Well, number one, if I have an inner man, right, then I need to recognize that if I live on a purely physical gratification level, I'll never find true fulfillment in my life, right? You're like, well, they look really happy, those, those people that have lots of money and they just do whatever they want, sex, drugs, blah, 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 blah. Well, they might look really happy, but Proverbs says, even in laughter, a man's heart can be filled with sorrow. Sure, sin is inviting, but sin does not satisfy. So when Jesus taught us and quoted this verse from Deuteronomy, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I think we misunderstand what he means by that. You go, I know a lot of people that never read the Bible and they didn't die. Jesus says you can't live on bread alone. Well, he doesn't mean exist. Most of the world exists on bread alone. They don't have a place or an opportunity to hear the word of God, okay? But when the Bible says man shall not live, there's a difference between existing and living. The Bible talks about the life that Christians can experience. Jesus said, I came that you might have life abundantly. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, we might take hold of that which is real life, life indeed, a satisfying, meaningful life, a purposeful life, a life where we experience joy in our sorrow, where we experience God's peace in our pain. It's not like we're happy all the time, our best life now. 
But as I understand that God has designed me to, to, to grow spiritually, not just to indulge my, my appetites for sex or pleasure or a, a better meal or another vacation for a nicer car, that, that it helps me to think about, okay, what really matters in life? And the other thing is Jesus goes, as you think about living for simply external gratification, think long term. What if you get everything you wanted physically? You got that job, you got that woman, you got that car, you got that husband, you got that fame, you got that status. You, you climbed the ladder, but you ignored God. You didn't think about your soul. Jesus says, verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So for those of you who are kind of new to this, you're like, I'm just learning this Bible stuff. Why didn't somebody teach me this stuff? What do you think about that? For some of you, that should be a little disconcerting. You might be like, wait a minute. So you're saying that I could lose my soul and, and, and I could go to hell? I didn't say it. Jesus did. So, so he's reminding us to think about things that matter long term, not just, well, is this going to make me happy? All right, briefly, the last thing we want to just ponder for a moment is what was Adam like before he sinned? Probably best to use a term something like this. He had an unconfirmed innocence. I don't like to say that Adam was perfect because I guess when I think of perfection, I think of incapable of sinning. So the Bible describes God's nature as being incapable of sinning. The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. Adam and Eve were innocent. They were very good, but they were unconfirmed. It was a probation, a testing time where God put them in, the, in this, this, this garden and, and he said, you can have all of this, but you can't touch that. Okay? And we all know the story that Adam ate the, the forbidden fruit. And the Bible describes that as, as, as this great tragedy through one man's sin entered the world. So next week, we're going to talk about the implications because if I believe that Adam and Eve's original sin happened, then I need to think about its consequences. The consequences are the Bible teaches that all of mankind is condemned and corrupt. So this helps me understand why I'm messed up. So if somebody says, man, you're messed up, I don't have to go, no, I'm not. I go, we're all messed up. We're all dysfunctional in one way or another, but we're we're in healing. So next week when we study the fall and original sin and the corruption of what the Bible calls the flesh, living in the flesh, these are some of the, so it makes me understand what's wrong with the world we live in. I get it because it's a fallen, sin-cursed, Satan-controlled world. What's wrong with me? Why do I act the way that I do? The Bible tells me why. It tells me why I need to be saved. Yeah, but I'm trying to parent my children. I know the grammar's wrong here. How am I to parent as a sinful parent. Well, I know I have sinful children, but I'm, but I'm also a sinful parent, right? And so sometimes that distorts the way that I parent. I'm trying to help them be in the image of God while I'm losing my temper, right? It also affects my spouse. I mean, I, early on, I became very clear that my, my spouse had sinfulness. It was a little more disconcerting when I found out I did too. <laughs> How does mine and my spouse's sinfulness affect my marriage, and what can I do about it? Am I just doomed to a life of sad enduring, or is there hope for change and transformation in the gospel? 
even as you think about the spouse you're going to choose. Don't just look on the outside. Woo, he's hot. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. Look for character. Look for godliness. Look for things that endure. And then finally, what should I do when I sin? And how do I learn to resist and fight against sin? Do I just put a bumper sticker on my car? Hey, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. The Bible says, I write these things so that you may not sin. And, and there truly is victory in Jesus to grow. We're not perfect, but we're in a process. That's why we're studying how people change and we're seeking to walk in the spirit and be transformed. So you're like, okay, gotcha. Nice lesson there, teach. Felt like I was in a classroom. Oh, no. Oh, no, we're not going to leave with information. Let's talk about application. What are you going to do about it? So the Bible is never meant to just be heard. The Bible says if you just hear the word and don't do what it says, you deceive yourself. So I need to hear this too. Number one, have you been born again so that your sins are forgiven? I got good news and bad news. The bad news is Jesus said, if you're not born again, you're not going to heaven, period. John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. If you care about that, you should be then asking, well, how do I get born again? I, I, I don't want I I to leave here without being born again. Well, if you want to become born again, we'll show you how from the Bible. It's not, some, it's not a big process that takes two years. It's, it's a gift from God that you receive by faith as you repent and believe that Christ died for you. Come and talk to me or talk to someone who brought you. Don't put that off. If you're struggling, you're like, I think I am, but I'm not sure. Let's resolve that. The Bible tells you that you can know you're born again. You're like, ah, oh, pastor, I, are, I know I'm born again. Okay, great. So let's, let's think about the implications. As a born-again Christian being renewed into the image of God, let's talk about your gender and sexuality. Um, we're all in a process of learning to glorify God with our body. To teach our children, the Bible says, don't, don't, don't live in lustful passion like godless people who don't know God, but learn to possess your body in holiness. It's a process. I'm learning. I'm growing through the Holy Spirit in sexual purity and self-control. So I go, all right, that's a significant, we just had a men's retreat with, with the subject of accountability, and this is something, this isn't just for the locker room, this is for Christians. Each one of us needs to think about that. And as I think about gender, I ought to think about how am I doing in my role as a husband or wife? You're like, oh, pastor, good thing you said what you did. My wife needed to hear that. If that's your attitude, I can already tell you, you're messed up. Because <laughs> you're deflecting and worrying about how they act instead of how you react. Because what God is saying to you and me is you can't be responsible for your spouse, but how are you doing? Are you men showing sacrificial love to your wives? Are you being patient, kind, unselfish, forgiving, right? You're like, my marriage is really hard. Get in line. Marriage is hard. It's two sinners, Right? It's not constant, enduring happiness. We have a lot of people in marital crisis right now. Don't be fooled by all the smiling people like, what's wrong with us? Right? But don't implode. Don't let it go down the tubes and then come and say, we're divorced. Right? Get help. Talk to people. Get counseling. And ask yourself, how much of this problem is not my circumstances, it's my sin, it's me. And some of you have been wounded deeply by others, but God uses those things to, to, to conform us to the image of Christ. And then finally, the last quick question is, hey, if I'm made in the image of God and I've got an inner man and it's being renewed, 
what are you doing with your inner person? Are you allowing Jesus to grow and change you on the inside and eventually that's going to show up on the outside? Are, are you living by bread alone? You're like, Pastor, I don't have time. She said, I don't have time to read the Bible and pray. I mean, I, I'm just so busy. And I go, hmm, I rarely find people who go, I don't have time to eat. And I don't have time. I forgot to eat this week, right? I'm too busy to eat this week, right? We make time for the things that we consider essential. We've all got the same amount of time, but we lose our way. And so we buy these lies that my real happiness is, is, is in my looks or in my status, my job, or it's if my kids are all hitting home runs and getting straight A's and going to an Ivy League school, or it's my possessions. If I have this house or this car or this money or this vacation, and you're going, oh, oh, pastor, that's for unsaved people. No, it's not. This is for Christians also. Jesus said, many people receive the word of God, but then the desire for other things enters in, the pleasures of this world, and it chokes out the word, and they become unfruitful Christians. So, so, so it's helpful to go, wow, I want to I step back and say, as I consider, I'm here to become like Jesus. I'm here to serve God. My joy and fulfillment doesn't come with my stuff. So let's close praying that God will grow our church through the gospel, to be Christ-centered, growing disciples, godly spouses, godly parents. All of us have a burden to see our kids, learning how to pray for them, learning how to model what it looks like, learning how to come alongside a, a fellow sinner who's just not further along in life and, and both discipline and train them, but to love them and, and, and advance the gospel with them, learning to face our own Weaknesses, instead of denying them, going, yeah, thank you, God. This is why Jesus died for me. I thank you so much for the joy of having Christ in my life. So let's pray, and then next week, be sure to come back, because your spouse is really going to need to learn about this corruption <laughs> stuff, right? All right, let's pray. Father, your word is powerful. And to each one of us, you have spoken through your word. And I pray that your word will fall on fruitful hearts. Lord, we all need in different areas to repent, to surrender to the Holy Spirit, to be cleansed by the blood, and to continue to grow. Thank you so much for the spirit and the life of Christ, that it is no longer us who live, but Christ lives in us. And because, Lord Jesus, you live in us, there's hope that you will live through us and that we will change and grow. Bring healing, bring honest conversations, bring, bring scripture to address our pain. I pray that many more people will come into this church, even some that are here this morning that will not leave until they give their lives to Christ and become born again. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for each Christian here who's trying to live for you and ministering to others. As you send us back to our homes, may we, may we reflect in some small way the image of God for the glory of Jesus. We ask this for your praise and your fame. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.